Dr. Ines Yuvan Folier and Dr. Marcin Barczewski. Um, and today we're going to be talking about what makes an exoplanet habitable. And I think a good place to start would be what are the most important factors for life? Marcin, if you want to start. Yes, thanks, Alex. So I think it's 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 a really excellent question because you know we as far as we as we know, um, Earth is the only place that has life in the universe. Uh, this may change in the future, you never know. But the life as we know it, which means a water-based life, only exists on Earth because we have liquid water. And um, based on various um, studies and discussions, it seems that water is the absolutely critical element for emergence of life. And this is for a number of reasons. One of them is that it allows uh, compounds to be dissolved in it, and that enables reactions to occur, which at some point may lead to to self-assembly of proteins, well, molecules, uh, which then become more and more complex. Um, the way we think life evolved on Earth was by spontaneously arranging various organic chemicals that formed uh, RNA, most likely, that served as a template for building up DNA and that built all these self-replicating mechanisms, which then evolved into life as we know, as we know it these days. And that was obviously affected by, you know, the temperature of the planet and the fact that liquid water could exist on the surface and also the fact that we have oxygen in the atmosphere as well. Well, yes, but oxygen appeared much, much later. First atmosphere, first environments were uh, reductive. They, there was no oxygen uh, yeah. in the atmosphere, so it was all, you know, um, kind of reacting in water, and then oxygen appeared only as a byproduct of photosynthesis many, many millions, hundreds of millions years later. And I guess even if we take a step back in this, in terms mm -hmm. of the planet needs to be in the solar system for, you know, for us to have liquid water on the surface. Exactly. So uh, thank you, Martin and Alex, for pointing out uh, these important aspects. And that water is definitely one of the most important things that we need on Earth to, yeah, to be alive. And so we're looking for this on, on other planets. Um, but speaking of that, so, I mean, first of all, to be able to have liquid water on a planet, that planet needs to be just at the right distance from its star, which also depends on the properties of the star. But the conditions on the planet just need to be not too hot and not too cold so that we have liquid water. Um, but <laughs> You mentioned that as well, Marcin, that uh, you spoke a lot about the, the, the history and evolution, basically, of, of Earth. And um, I think that's uh, also a key point. So, yes, we're looking for a planet that uh, has liquid water at the moment, but I think it's very tricky to get there. It depends a lot on the, on the history of the planet and the star as well. So, like, for example, you have a, a planet maybe at the right location, uh, to its star, but then the star is very, very active, and that could uh, lead to atmospheric erosion at the very early stages of the planet's evolution, which is not good <laughs> for future development of life. So, yeah, I think the, the basic principle is we have to find a planet in that so-called habitable zone, so it's at the right location to have liquid water, uh, but I think there's so many more factors um, that depend on that. And uh, yeah, I think that question really becomes interdisciplinary. So 
think that's very, very interesting. And also, I was very curious um, to hear uh, if the two of you, so do you think there is a life somewhere on another planet, or is this something you think very unrealistically? I think, well, I think with the conditions required for life to evolve on Earth, I think that it's quite unlikely that life as we know it exists on another planet out there somewhere. I think it's a, it's a really interesting question, you know, and that goes back to the, the famous Drake equation that um, tries to come up with an estimate of, of, of number of planets with life in the universe. And I think, while I don't agree you know, with some of the elements of the equation, I think the premise is right that given the vastness of the universe and, you know, and, yeah. the, and the trillions of possible combinations of, you know, of planets and stars, I think we're bound to have, you know, at least a handful of planets which are with some form of life. Uh, it may not be the life, you know, intelligent life that we have on Earth, but I, I like to think, you no, know, we are not alone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a very tricky question. Obviously, we only know life, um, yeah, as we know it here on Earth. Uh, so we're trying to look for something what we know. But um, yeah, I, I think it's it's. It's pretty exciting if you think about it that uh, even if we would look at an exoplanet, and I mean all the exoplanets that have been found so far were quite surprising. So they have very surprising characteristics in terms of masses uh, and sizes and distances from their star. And so it's very, very exotic uh, objects out there. So I think even if we would investigate such a planet and we would see a signature, which is very different from what we know from Earth, uh, well, we can't really say if there's life on it or not because we just can't interpret that signature. So I, I think that's a very exciting topic for the future. And yes, I guess the first step is to look for something that is familiar to us. But uh, I think we have to have an open mind to other signatures. But at the same time, that's difficult to learn from it if we don't have a sample, right? So I was just thinking, you know, if we look at life on Earth, they include trees and plants and organisms like that. Do you, would you expect, you know, on a habitable exoplanet, the trees and plants to behave the same way that they do here, or even look the same that they do here? Yeah, I guess that depends on the on the stars, on its uh, spectrum, and where it radiates the most uh, energy, and also I guess on the um, how the the plants get their energy or you know, we have uh, the plants on Earth, they're green for a reason, so they have uh, chlorophyll, and so the most of the green light from the sun gets reflected, uh, even though that's the wavelength range where the sun emits the most amount of light. So, yeah, I think it, it really depends on, the, on that exo, extraterrestrial system, so the, the stellar properties as well as uh, the plants, uh, on, on that planet, so it can be, I guess, quite surprising. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right because you know it's um, now we we only talked about you know light in a sense, you know what can be the color of this and what can be the photosynthesis using different wavelength ranges. But there's also something to bear in mind, which is gravity, right? If we have mm -hmm. a small planet, it will be much it will have much less gravitational pull, so things may be really really tall because they can grow to enormous sizes. Okay. If it's a That's rocky planet, slightly larger than Earth, it, it may be very heavy you know, to be on the planet. Well, you will feel very heavy on the planet, so 
maybe very stumpy growth, very, very short plants or animals. So yeah, there are a number of interesting things to consider there. No, me either. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. <laughs> yeah, I think that speaks again to the point we made in the beginning that I think we, we really need to have open minds about uh, the possibility to find other life and, and how that could have evolved and how it would look like. But I think it's really tricky because we don't have such an exotic sample of other life. So, yeah, yeah are there actually a lot of, um, I, I'm wondering if there are any um, lab experiments where they try to, I don't know, create uh, different, um, not life forms, but uh, different uh, combinations of molecules that could uh, lead to development of life. Do you know of anything like that? Well, yeah, there's a Miller-Urey experiment from, I think it's from the 50s, where they tried to simulate prebiotic conditions on early Earth. So they have a flask, which is uh, like half filled with water, which is connected with some glass tubing to um, another flask. And then the loop is kind of closed with this U-bend piece of glass. And the glass that's filled with water is like gently heated. And the glass that's filled with gas is filled with methane, ammonia, and hydrogen. And then they have um, like electrodes that discharge a spark. And what they do is heat up the flask with the water in. The water then evaporates um, and the, the water vapor and the gases react um, with the um, spark of electricity to then form really simple compounds um, called amino acids, which actually precursors to things like the building blocks of DNA. Um, and the, because this experiment was done, you know, quite a long time ago, the kind of analytical chemistry techniques they had at the time, um, uh, Miller actually used paper chromatography in order to be able to identify the amino acids. Um, so, yeah, that's one experiment I know of. I don't know about you, Martin. No, I think that was the one that was actually quite famous for a number of decades. That you know, it was shown, you know, that it was possible in principle by using electricity and uh, a fairly basic mix of organic compounds that we know exists in outer space. You now there are clouds of gases of various, you know, ammonia and and various organic um, compounds that. So you know, you could imagine something like this happening. I think since then there were more, you know, more more qualifications of the experiment. You know, and it's it, it doesn't reflect what may have happened exactly, but I think it's a good enough idea to, you know, to give us, you know, something to think about. Well, and there are other examples where uh, meteorites have like hit Earth and they've been found to have amino acids on them. Some, oh yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. As some of, some, and I think some of the amino acids aren't actually present naturally on Earth as well. Yeah, so I think, I, I think if I remember correctly, I think there were different uh, chirality. I think they were, you know, not L, but D or vice versa. I can't remember, but there was something you know, unusual about them, but it shows that you know you can find these elemental building blocks you know out mm -hmm. in the cosmos, you know, and and, and and I think they are so. I think that's the beauty of life. It can be built from this really basic things, you know, to emerge at some point. What makes it emerge? That's a big question. Yeah, and I also find it so interesting. I mean, we talk about life on other planets, uh, and then if you look at our solar system with all these uh, moons that are so very interesting like for example uh europa or callisto enceladus or even uh, titan i mean those are all moons where they expect uh, that they have an, an ocean underneath their surface where they would think that could uh, be a habitat for life so i mean that uh 
other life uh, might be closer than than we think. I mean, we can't imagine what could be under such icy an icy crust uh, in such oceans. But uh, yeah, as I said, it, it might be closer than we think, and I find that very interesting. So I think it's always uh, easy to kind of lose uh, focus a bit. Like there's so many aspects, so many possibilities. So life, uh, finding life on uh, moons in our solar system, finding life on, I don't know, exomoons uh, or exoplanets. So, or even you find some amino acids on, uh, I don't know, asteroids and whatever. I, I think uh, the options are, are quite large. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting too, because, you know, if life doesn't look like the way that it will, it, what it looks like on Earth, it's mm -hmm. interesting just to think about what we need to be searching for, like what chemical markers we need to be looking for to indicate life on other planets. I just found uh, one perspective quite interesting where they try to look for specific atmospheric features in an exoplanet's atmosphere. And one thing is, for example, that they look uh, for two molecules where they know, okay, they would actually uh, destroy each other. Uh, but if they could observe an exoplanet, they observe the atmosphere, and then they would see that these uh, molecules that would normally destroy each other, that they would uh, be observable and measurable that would indicate that there must be some process on this planet that would, you know, keep on producing these two molecules. Uh, and that could be, I don't know, it could be just the planet itself, some, I don't know, just uh, from volcanoes or whatever, uh, other processes, but other maybe educed uh, from life. So I, I find that very interesting to look for such features. And there's also another one. Um... Uh, such uh, marker that could be used at some point, and that's actually, that's actually uh, an element, uh, magnetium, that doesn't occur naturally uh, on in the universe. But if it occurs, then it can be produced only in accelerators. So you know, if we can spot magnetium somewhere out in space, it will most likely be an indication of intelligent life being able to build an accelerator. That's cool. That's a that's a really nice way to wrap things up. I think for today. So our question today was what makes an exoplanet habitable um, and Marcin, what would you say are the most important factors? Well, as far as we know, it's water, but uh, as we have heard today, there are a number of other elements to consider, it's not just water. Okay, well thank you very much um, for joining me and thank you for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Andor Technology Podcast. Andor is an Oxford Instruments business, specializing in the design and manufacture of market-leading imaging and spectroscopy solutions for the scientific research market. For more information on our products and services, please visit andor.com.